Thanks, Phil. Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning. Glad that you can join us as we uh, continue in a series called Portrait. We're seeking together to reframe uh, our understanding of God's character in order that we might represent God's character better in our city and our world. This morning, we're looking at a somewhat difficult passage, right? This is this uh, section of Scripture where God, many times, actually, in the Old Testament says, I want you to go in and kill everything. And if you're like me, you've encountered people for whom this is a major barrier uh, to faith. We want to take some time and look at this this morning. It's actually, I'll let you know, probably the hardest sermon I've ever had to prepare because it's a, it's a difficult message to deliver, and yet I think very, very timely and appropriate, particularly tomorrow being Indigenous uh, People's Day and uh, our own collective acknowledgement that uh, we've been guilty uh, of colonialism, and there's blood on everybody's hands. So with that as a cheery introduction, let's begin. I'll pray together. Father, thank you so much that we can gather here. We listen for your voice now. We trust that your Holy Spirit would shape us in order that we might be people who represent your heart well. We know your desire is that we look like the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, so would you move us toward that goal in our time together this morning? We'll thank you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, I'll just begin by sharing a story. This woman who went to Costco with no faith background. Her world was kind of imploding. She went and she, she bought a Bible. And with most books, if you buy a book, you start reading where? At the beginning. And then you just read through. Well, so she liked, she liked Genesis and Exodus was okay. Uh, Leviticus was boring then by the time you get toward the end of Deuteronomy, uh, God begins to talk about going in and conquering the land and getting rid of the people and cleansing the land of the people. And then by the time you get to uh, the book of Joshua, God literally says, hey, now when you go in uh, to I, I want you to destroy everything that moves. If there's anything breathing, it must be killed. Literally, she threw her, her brand new Bible in the trash and said, if that's God, I'm not interested. And I've got to be honest with you, I don't really blame her if that's God. Unfortunately, uh, uh, she didn't read the whole story, and it's not the whole story, but it's part of the story. And because it's part of the story, uh, the Bible has subsequently been then misused to justify uh, colonialism, and slavery, and land theft, and if you look back and you see the witch crusades, and the witch hunts, and, all, and, the, and the, just so much in our history is party to uh, violence, and pride, and arrogance, and that kind of thing. And it's not just Christianity, it's all the monotheistic religions. It's Judaism as well. And it's Islam. And all three, uh, we all claim the same, the God of Abraham as our God. I have an artist friend uh, uh, in Great Britain, and I'd purchased some art from her. Uh, a few years ago, on my blog, I wanted to post one of her works of art. So I sent her an email, and I asked her if I could post a work of, art on, on, a work of her art on my blog. And she wrote back, she said, no, I read your blog, and you're a Christian. And she said, I, uh, I despise all isms because isms are at the source uh, 
of all the destruction that's happened in humanity. And so she would echo uh, John Lennon, right? Imagine, imagine there's no heaven, imagine there's no hell, there's no religion. Wouldn't it be awesome if we could all just hold hands around the campfire and sing Kumbaya and get along and all the, all the dividing walls were, were gone. And when we look at particular passages in the Old Testament, you could cherry pick certain passages, you go, uh, if, my, if my desires are for unity and peace, and this is the God that I'm being asked to worship, thanks, but no thanks, I don't want to worship that God. So that's kind of the problem that's on the table uh, this morning, and it's a real problem. So here's what we're going to do. If we look at this for just a second here, uh, I'm going to show you this. We want to look at, on the, you want to see the back of my head. I think, is there, there might be a way, to, is there a way to do this? Can we look? I can't see you guys. Is it working? No. There it is, yeah. I, you know, I figured this is, a, I mean, what we're doing this morning is a bit of a lecture, actually. So I wanted to give you some visuals along the way. And so uh, we want to spend some time looking at uh, the presenting problem of God's anger, the solution, and the conclusion. And so I'll draw on here just a little bit along the way, not, but not for a little while. So we begin here with the presenting problem. What is the presenting problem? Well, um, we go to the Old Testament, and there are narratives that display God as sanctioning and invoking genocide and violence. And so, if I just look at that, then God is angry, God is territorial, and then God becomes the root cause of all kinds of tragedies that have been perpetrated in God's name. And as we know, there have been thousands of tragedies perpetrated in God's name uh, down through the centuries. So let's just start there and let's take, a, let's take a look at this and just say, don't pretend these texts aren't there. Don't do that. That's intellectually dishonest. Don't pretend the texts aren't offensive. They are offensive. Don't pretend the texts haven't been used to justify violence and colonialism and slavery. They have. And they've been used to justify the oppression of women and anti-Semitism and degradation of the earth. The, in other words, if we're not careful, the Bible gets misused. So don't shrink back from problems in the Bible because if you shrink back and you refuse to address them, uh, then the questions that people have remain unanswered. And the reality is, you can use the Bible to reinforce evil. You can. Uh, people do. And that's a problem. So we have to own that problem. And not only own it, but own it collectively in the sense that, you know, we are in a long line of church history, and church history... Uh, the bride of Christ has blood on her hands, uh, uh, unjust actions carried out in Jesus' name. So we, it would be wrong of us to kind of place ourselves up here on some kind of false moral high ground. We don't want to do that. So we just start there. The presenting problem is uh, the violence in the Old Testament and the reality that this violence has been, mis has, has been used as a means of sanctioning all kinds of evil carried out in Jesus' name down through the centuries. So that we're going to start there. But then we get a solution. Here's what I, I want to show you. The solution is interpretation, right? So we have to interpret. Interpretation. However that's spelled, you get, you get the picture, right? So we want, to, we want to become people who are wise in uh, interpretation because often... We just, this is what we say. 
Oh, you know what? It's simple. I just, I just do what the Bible says. Who's ever said it or heard it in the room? Anybody? Yeah, I just, I just follow the Bible. Uh, no, you don't. Nobody does. And the reason is because the Bible is in, internally contradictory. The Bible's contradictory. How do I know? I'll give you one example. I could give you 10. I'm going to give you one. Uh, remember in the Old Testament, uh, when God offers the law to the nation of Israel, he goes, okay, this meat is clean, this meat is unclean. You can eat the, you can eat the clean stuff, you can't eat the unclean stuff. And by the way, the unclean stuff is the good stuff. It's the bacon, it's the shrimp, it's the lobster, it's the good stuff, right? I mean, the clean stuff's fine too, but the unclean stuff, awesome. So, uh, don't eat the unclean meat. And then, we, uh, you know, fast forward a little bit. Here's another snapshot of the Bible. It's in Acts chapter 10. Apostle Peter, he's Jewish. He grew up in the Jewish faith. He's a follower of Christ now. And uh, Jesus died, resurrected, ascended. Peter's at a meal. He's, on a, he's taking a nap on the roof. God says uh, to Peter, uh, hey, see this sheet of meat that I'm bringing up from heaven? He's bringing down all this, this is sheet filled with all these animals. And they're unclean, Right? So there's pork in there, and there's shrimp in there, and there's lobster in there. And God says to Peter, get up, kill, and eat. And what does Peter say? Does anyone know? He says, I can't. Uh, in fact, I never will. God, you called it unclean. And then God's like this. Yeah, I did. Now it's clean. Right? The unchanging God. It was unclean. Now it's clean. Then, uh, uh, so Peter eats is remarkably transformed, begins eating bacon for breakfast every morning, I'm sure. And then, uh, by the time you get to Acts 15, uh, the, the, the Gentiles are coming into the church in Jerusalem, and since the church in Jerusalem has its roots in Judaism, there are questions about circumcision and keeping the law and all this stuff, and they say, the church collectively says, oh yeah, this front row, all these Gentiles, yeah, they can come in as long as they don't eat any meat sacrificed to idols. That is, boom, forbidden. So they're all like this. Okay, we won't eat any meat sacrificed to the idols. Fast forward 10 more years. Paul's writing 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, now regarding meat sacrificed to idols, here's what we know. Who cares? You want to eat meat? Sacrificed to idols? Eat meat sacrificed to idols. You want to eat sausage? Eat sausage. You want to eat pork? Eat pork. You want to be vegan? Go. You want to be keto? Fine. You want to be paleo? Who cares? Eat. So when you say I just follow the Bible. I don't know what you're talking about. Because the Bible is in, internally uh, contradictory. We just have to name that. But that means that every text then must have what? Interpretation. Every text has to have interpretation. Uh, and so in, like uh, every text needs interpretation. Every interpretation then needs wisdom. And then this wisdom needs this careful discernment between what is timeless and time-bound in the Bible. Fundamentalism reads the Bible as if God is as simple as we are, but religions, especially religions of the book, and that's Christianity, Judaism, Islam, uh, these religions have hard texts, verses, commands, episodes, narratives, that if you understand literally and apply directly, would offend your moral senses and go against your best understanding of your own religion. 
So there are many examples in the Hebrew Bible. There's this war of revenge against the Midianites. There's the war mandated against the seven nations who are occupying the land of Canaan, the promised land. There's the book of Joshua with its wars of conquest and bloody revenge against the Amalekites in the book of Samuel. And any normal reader reads this, and this offends moral sensibilities, right? So if fundamentalism reads texts as if God is as simple as we are, it's important that we respond to that by saying God is not that simple. We must have sound interpretation of the Bible because here's the deal. You can, make, you can use the Bible to say and justify anything. You, you can use the Bible to justify anti-Semitism. Luther did it. You can use the Bible to justify colonialist expansion because all you got to do is go back to the Old Testament and say, look, God said, go in, take the land, and we're going to make it a new great, it's going to be a new great nation. Guess, guess what? That's what we've done. So, so the Bible has been misused in, in ways that are destructive. The uh, Christians in the South, in the United States, have used the Bible to justify slavery based on a non-reading of Genesis uh, chapter 9. So anti-Semitism, colonial expansion, slavery, all justified using the Bible. Why? Because, because of bad interpretation. That's the deal. So if I, look, if I'm going to be honest in my faith, then I have to look at the presenting problem honestly, and then I've got to look for the right solution. And the right solution calls for uh, interpretation. And so when it comes to the matter of interpretation, the starting point for interpretation is this. I'll see if you guys can see this. The starting point for interpretation is Hebrews chapter 1, right? So I'm just going to read here Hebrews chapter 1, which says this. And listen carefully. It's very, very important. This is like what, actually one of the most important kind of lenses through which we look at the whole Bible. Watch this. God spoke long ago to fathers and the prophets in many portions, many ways. So here's the author of Hebrews. First thing he says, look, God has spoken in the past. God revealed God's character in the past. In what? Many ways in the past. But now, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed to be heir of all things, through whom he made the world. So, uh, Look at this. We had a revelation of God in the past, and now we have another revelation of God, a new revelation of God. And so here was, this was the, there's God in the Old Testament, and now in the New Testament, God shows up in the person of Christ, right? Now, here's what I want you to see. Hebrews 1 says that Christ is, watch this, the full and final representation of God's character. Christ is the full and final representation. In other words, when you've, what did Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? So therefore, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That, what, the, what does that mean? That means that if I'm not, I, Christ, am not violent, the Father's not violent. That means if I, Christ, love my enemies, the Father loves his enemies. That means if I, Christ, am willing to go to the cross, the Father is willing to lay down his life. That means if I, Christ, absorb violence, the Father absorbs violence. This, this representation, Christ, it's gone. <laughs> this representation is the full representation, right? So Christ is, 
If you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father. John 1.14, the Word became flesh, lived among us. We beheld in Jesus the glory of God. So here's the conviction of the outset. Everything that contradicts the character of Jesus cannot be God's true character. You, we have to see that. Everything that contradicts the, the character of Jesus can't be God's true, uh, true character. But then we have to ask these questions. So why would there be uh, these hard texts in the Old Testament? Why did God show up that way, right? And so I'm going to try and, if I can here, show you something. Here we go. Let's look at this. Here's two, there's two reasons why. The first reason is evolution. second reason is accommodation. Let me show you this. In other words, uh, God shows up in the Old Testament, and even though the God of the Bible is, is portrayed as invoking violence, the God of the Bible is light years ahead of other ancient Near East gods. That's A-N-E over here, ancient Near East gods. In other words, when you look at... God shows up to Abraham, right? So Abraham's part of uh, Ur in the Chaldees. It's polytheistic. Abraham himself is polytheistic. All cultures in ancient Near, uh, Near East culture at the time are polytheistic. And then Elohim shows up and he says, look, now it's not going to be many gods. It's going to be one. It's not going to be tribal gods. I, Elohim, I will be the God for all people. Isaiah 2. When, the, when history ends, every nation's going to be at the table because I'm the God above all gods, right? Then, ancient Near East gods, the humans were slaves. Now, I'm telling you, no, you're not slaves. You're made in God's image. Then, uh, when, there, when there, was, uh, hu there was human sacrifice to the gods, now, in, in, this, in this new kind of evolved God, so to speak, God says to Abraham, hey, take your son, go offer as a sacrifice. Abraham knows, uh, well, of course, this is what all gods do, right? So I'm going to take my son and offer as a sacrifice. And then he goes up the mountain and he lights a fire and uh, he's ready to, you know, sacrifice his son. And then what does God say? Stop. Why? This is not who I am. It's what God is saying to all of us, right? So, so, there, there were lots of gods. There was human sacrifice, and there's a story of Isaac. There was slavery, and then the slaves are free. Women were less than, women were property and less than property, and then women begin to have rights. So God is showing up in a way, not yet revealing God's full character, but God is showing us significantly that God is uh, superior over all the other gods, if that makes sense. And I lost my pen, so I can't write anymore. Oh, well. It'll show up later. Oh, there it is. Okay. <laughs> I knew it was somewhere. So what, what God is trying to show us here is, uh, uh, look, you have all these ancient Near Eastern gods, but God is saying this. I'm the true God. And so my ways, God's ways, are better than all the other gods in the ancient Near East. And so, though what we see in God's character today offends our sensibilities, this God was far superior and resonated morally with people more than any other God. Are you with me? So that's, 
That's this notion of evolution, but then you kind of ask the question, well, fine, but why didn't God reveal God's full character? And the answer is accommodation. In other words, and this is very important, God loves us in the midst of our brokenness, and as a result, God accommodates our cultural blind spots. God has always done that, right? So monotheism was born, as I've already shared, in the midst of ancient Near East polytheism, all the gods were violent, warring, territorial. The God of the Bible is a call ultimately for all people to worship the God above all gods, more accurately, uh, the, the, the true and living God. But this God is utterly other than the other gods. But if this God, if, if this God revealed himself fully, he wouldn't be accepted because he would be so far out there in decision of the other gods, he wouldn't even look like a god. Are you, are you with me? In other words, uh, who's ever heard this saying before? If you're leading and you turn around and nobody's following because you're so far out front, you're not leading. Anyone in the room who's in management or leadership knows about what? Change management, right? Change management. In other words, we're going to introduce a new thing. How do we do that? Well, you can't just airdrop in and, and, and move a people 10 miles. We, as a species, move slowly. So what does God do? Watch this. God accommodates. How, oh, really? Yeah, here's how. Uh, remember Genesis uh, chapter um, 2? We see God's design on marriage. One man, one woman, life, all that stuff. Does, but, and yet, what do we see today? And all through the Bible. God accommodates divorce. God accommodates polygamy. Uh, God accommodates monarchy. In other words, God said, you guys don't need a king. I'll be your king. What do they say? No, no, we, we insist. We want a king. So what does God do? God, God gives people a king, right? God doesn't, in other words, this is very important, uh, if, if, if humans are here and God is up here, God doesn't say, look, you get your act together and ascend to me. God comes and meets us and then, and then leads us. Are you with me? So God comes out and meets us and leads us. This is, the way, this is actually the way God works. And this is what it means to be incarnational, of course. So God comes down and then slowly moves us. Look, Humanity, it's not many gods, it's one God. And then we move from killing outsiders to, under the leadership <clears throat> of Elohim, uh, welcoming the stranger and the foreigner and the immigrant. We move from disregard to the poor to planting, uh, 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 excuse me, not harvesting the, uh, the perimeter of our field so that the poor have food. We move from women oppressed to women empowered. We, we, we move from a territorial God who kills people who are different than them to all through the Old Testament even, these, these hints that, that God is, is not for just Jewish men. That, that, that God is way beyond that. So that you find in the line of Christ, um, uh, Tamar uh, and, and uh, uh, the, the woman who hid the spies, in, in Joshua, in chapter 1, who's a Gentile. So you find Gentiles in this, 
in this line, and you find women in this story, and you find women empowered, and all of this is off the map, explosive, and new, even though to us today, it looks archaic. Does that make sense? So God is accommodating in order to move people forward. That's the way that God works. So if, this is very important in this sense, right? If God accommodates, then we also are called to accommodate. Let me explain what I mean. A missionary couple goes to Africa, and uh, the tribe with whom they build relationships, they're living with a people group. This tribe is involved in uh, female circumcision, the, the mutilation of young teenage girls, you know? And it's offensive to the missionaries, uh, but they can't, you just can't come in and say, this is the way it's going to be now. Are you with me? So instead, what do they do? Well, we're going to mitigate the, the pain of the situation. They become involved in uh, administering anesthesia, anesthesia for the sur- surgery. They become involved in uh, follow-up care to make sure there's no infection, in, in, infections. And so, like, if you just took a snapshot, you'd say, man, look at that. They favor that. No, they don't. They're there incarnationally to move people out of that. This is who God is in the Old Testament. Does that? I hope that makes sense to you. But if God is accommodating in that way, then it falls on us to be accommodating in that way with one another as well. So there are times when you may think that you're enlightened about something and you know a Christian who doesn't quote-unquote get it, I'm telling you, you should be as patient with them as God is with you. Because everyone's invited to keep, everyone's invited to keep pointing each other to Christ. So, so that's what we see going on in the Old Testament. And as this stuff is going on, know that uh, God's heart even breaks in the midst of the Old Testament violence. Because it says in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23, that God does not delight in the death of any person, right? When Jesus weeps at the tomb of Lazarus, the tears that Jesus wept were tears of anger. Death, death is this offensive intrusion. We're made not for death, but for life. And so God weeps over that, right? So this is a very difficult situation, this accommodation, but it's a reality. And then I want to encourage you, because, it, because accommodation is a reality, be careful not to judge God's, God's ways here. And here's why. If you said, look, I don't want to worship a God who accommodates violence, then this is what you also have to say. I don't want to, this is what you are saying. You're saying, in essence, I don't want to worship a God who accommodates sin. <laughs> and if you don't want to worship a God who accommodates sin, then you can't worship. Because God accommodates not only the sins that we see now clearly, retrospectively, as we look at the Old Testament, God accommodates not only the sins of violence, God accommodates your sin and my sin. And so 500 years from now, people look at this culture and say, what were they thinking about something? I'm not sure what it is. Maybe it's fossil fuels. Maybe they'll look back and say, Did, how could they? But we don't know because we're blind. God meets us here anyway. The beauty of the gospel is this. God is immensely patient to come and be what? With us 
so that he can move us away from that which is destructive. But God cannot be with us unless God accommodates, because the accommodation is what it means to be incarnational. So the good news then is we're gathered here. God is with us. God loves us, even though there's blood on our hands, because we're gathered on other people's land, you see? God, God is patient with the woman caught in adultery. God is patient with the woman with five husbands. God is patient with the sins of Peter when he denies Christ. Listen, uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Here's kind of the summary conclusion after Paul kind of deconstructs everyone's self-righteousness in Romans 1 and 2. The concluding statement of Romans 3 is this. Everyone has sinned. Everyone. So there's blood on all our hands, and yet God loves us. Why? Because God is patient with us patient with all people, and if God is patient with me, then I need to be patient with others. Which brings me then to this kind of concluding statement, love wins. I mean, in the end, we come to Christ, and in Christ we find the full and perfect expression of God, and yet even when we look at Christ, we find that Christ gets angry. It's interesting. Jesus' anger is kind of unique and so different than the God, the anger of uh, God in the Old Testament. Jesus is not angry at the rich young ruler uh, who goes away sad. Uh, he insists on hanging on his gold. He's not angry at that guy. He's brokenhearted. He's not angry at the people who are caught in systems of this world that enslave. He's angry at the systems, not the people. His heart breaks for these people, but he's not angry. Where Jesus gets angry at people in the Bible are when uh, there are religious leaders who are perpetuating systems that keep people away from God. Then Jesus gets angry. So, for example, in Mark chapter 3, uh, it's the Sabbath day, and uh, there's a guy and his hand is withered, and Jesus knows that the religious leaders are watching him to see if he's going to heal this guy on the Sabbath, because if he heals them on the Sabbath, they're going to accuse him of violating the law. So Jesus looks at the religious leaders and he says, Hey, I got a question for you. Is it illegal to do a good thing ever? I mean, that's my paraphrase, but that's what he says. Illegal to do a good thing. Is it ever illegal? Well, it's a, it's a condemning question to these guys, right? And so they don't, they can't answer, right? And then it, this is what it says. So Jesus looked around the room and it says he was grieved and angry at their hardness of heart. Why? Because they had developed a religious system that would rather see you remain sick than healed and come to Christ. So that, listen, any religious systems that we, that we make that build walls and then end up saying to people, hey, you're welcome to come, but look like us, think like us, vote like us, believe like us, act like us. Everyone's welcome. Just be like us. Jesus is mad. Why? Because Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus says, I will meet you here, right? <laughs> Jesus isn't calling us up some mountain so that only the fit survive. Jesus is going down the mountain to be with us so that he'll walk with us through the storms and valleys and difficulties of life 
that, that's our calling, to be with one another in exactly the same way. And so Jesus gets mad when these religious systems keep people out. Jesus gets mad when these religious systems hurt children. He says, man, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better to put your feet in cement and throw you in the Duwamish. Again, my paraphrase, right? So this kind of brings us to, a, like, I think an important conclusion. Jesus' desire is that we be incarnational with one another and with our world and then walk with people toward Christ. That's his desire. And anytime I put up a barrier, then that barrier is what makes Jesus angry. If I'm united with Christ, then God will take me places incarnationally where I can shine his light and when I shine his light and the presence of Christ is in, a, is, is in a setting, people either respond to the light and good things happen or people reject the light or both. But my calling is to draw near to this full expression of God, Jesus, who loves everyone, who crosses social divides, who lays down weapons, who turns the other cheek, who goes the second mile. This is God. And I'm called then as God's image bearer, as you are, to live yoked with Christ. So I want to be obsessed with Christ. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Since Christ is the full and final representation, for this reason we must what? Pay much closer attention to Christ, lest we drift away. There was a monk in the early 5th century. His name was Telemachus. He was praying one morning, and in prayer, fixated on Christ, he began to have this conviction Go to Rome. He lived on the outskirts of Rome. He begins to walk to Rome. And as, he, as he's walking into Rome, he's caught up in a crowd and everyone is going the same direction. He walks with them. He, he ends up uh, walking into the Colosseum. And uh, uh, what goes on in the Colosseum are these gladiatorial contests where two soldiers are fighting uh, to the death. And it's been going on for centuries. It's like the Roman version of sport. And it's how people kind of... Uh, let go of their, of their lust for violence, in a sense. So anyway, Telemachus walks in, and, and he's sitting there in the Colosseum, and these two soldiers uh, begin to fight, and he realizes that they're fighting to death. And because he's so yoked with Christ, this offends his sensibilities. So he, he stands up and he says, uh, in the name of Christ, Stop. And, I mean, everyone's cheering. It's like a football game. Everyone's cheering. No, he, they ignore him. He starts walking down the steps toward the arena. In the name of Christ, stop. Everyone's cheering. He goes out onto the field of the arena. And he stands between these two soldiers. And he says, in the name of Christ, let the killing stop. And so he's standing between these two guys and they're not fighting anymore. And as soon as they stop fighting, the crowd gets angry. And they begin to boo this guy, Telemachus. And then someone shouts, run him through! And the, a Roman soldier just takes his sword and kills Telemachus. And as he's sitting there, uh, dying in a pool of his own blood, the arena draws quiet. And then one by one, people get up and they 
and they, and they leave. And this was the last gladiatorial contest in the Roman Empire. Why? Because someone had the guts to be obsessed with Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? And say, not in God's name. Not in God's name. No. No violence in God's name. No colonialism in God's name. But I will be incarnational and I will walk with you every step of the way showing you nothing less than the character of the resurrected Jesus. That's our calling as people of hope. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that you're patient with us. You incredibly. We know our history. We know our failures. We don't know our blind spots. We know we have them. And yet you love us and you speak and you reveal and you teach. I pray, Father, that we would so obsess with you, so fixate on you, so know you, that the mind of Christ would permeate our vocational life, our sexuality, our, our entertainment choices, the way we use our money, so that we would represent nothing less than the heart of the true and living God, a God who loves everyone. May that be our story as you shape us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's worship together.